I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14, for the reading of God's Word that will take place momentarily. Competency can breed complacency. Write that down. Competency can breed complacency. Competency can breed complacency. In colonial America, each town knew they needed three professionals. With all respect to John Piper, who wrote his book about pastors, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals, the pastor was thought of as a professional in colonial America. That was one of three needed to be well-trained, emissaries to the community in any budding town or region. The second one, you can probably guess it, you got to have a medical doctor. And the third one, you can probably think about it, although your opinion may be shaped negatively in this day and age, but you needed somebody that understood the law. They had to be able to handle documents with precision, right? We call them lawyers. So you would have, uh, though times have changed a bit, uh, some things are still the same, you would have need of properly trained, properly motivated, benevolent lawyer, doctor, pastor in your particular budding town. Now, that may or may not hold today precisely. We have diversity of careers and opportunities, but with regard to professional services, I think that trifecta might serve us well today. Uh, in colonial times, there was a difference with regard to the governing authorities. It was common in American colonial times, or we might better say when we still had colonies before we had a country, and then after we had an actual country budding in the uh, early 1800s, it was common for governing elected officials to go do their congressional duties and then go back home to the farm or whatever work they had. They, they didn't just become full-time Washington, D.C. citizens. Um, well, you, you couldn't be citizens anyway of Washington, D.C. You're citizens of America, and there's a reason that they didn't have statehood. Another thing is they didn't just stay there because they had work to do at home. And another thing is it was thought that politicians shouldn't make a career out of being a politician. They should bring some other expertise to bear, and then they should come to govern together, but they should have to live with the consequences of their governance, so they would go back home. My fear today is that we have begun to view politicians as the third part of the trifecta in that thing, and we've stopped having expectations for pastors that have to do deep theological work to be able to convey to you deep theological food that you might be deeply theologically healthy from the Word of God. Now, I don't do that perfectly. I'll grant you that. But I'll tell you this, I know what I'm aiming for because I've had some folks that have gone before me that have told me that's what I'm supposed to be aiming for. This thing is over a 1,000 pages in length. It's got 66 books within it. Three-quarters of it was written in Hebrew in the Old Testament, and the other bit of it's written in Greek for the New Testament. There's a whole lot of language and history and theology to just to get to the point where this thing comes to you. By the way, that may happen four or five times a day. We cannot figure out why it's screeching. The guys have been working on it, working on it, working on it. They can't figure it out. So if it happens, we just have to go right on through it. I don't know what it is, but it happens when we're all in here. It doesn't happen when we're not. So anyway, if you want to give like, you know, $10,000, just put a new sound system in. If anybody would like to do that today, um, I'm sure the guys would, yeah, the sound desk is like, yes, we'll do that. So like, it's unavoidable because we're poor. But anyway, that helps a little bit. Uh, so back to the matter at hand. 
I'm not in any way trying to diminish the role of the governing authorities. In fact, I'm going to speak well of that role at the end of this sermon. But I'm wanting to lay the foundation for what I want to talk about this morning that I believe is central to the text by talking about sometimes we expect our preachers to act like politicians and our politicians to act like preachers. And when we get those things confused, we're destined to have failures. Let's just talk for a moment to lay the foundation here about doctors. If you haven't had this experience yet, I think you can sympathize with it, and several of you will have had this experience. You reach a certain age where you need to have a checkup annually. And when you go for that checkup, whatever that involves, based on your age, based on your gender, the checkup is a time when if you're going in for a routine checkup to have, say, blood work done or whatever the case may be, you're going in relatively healthy because, well, you're not in a hospital and you don't know of existing conditions. You're getting a checkup because you need a checkup. And there comes a point in every man or woman's life where the, the checkup reveals something that needs attention. Perhaps it, it, you need a treatment, a, a procedure, a, a medicine, right? And there comes a point in, in most everybody's life, if it's if the natural order of things come about, by which you discover that you were sick, but you didn't know it. Some of you can attest to this, right? It's kind of a scary thing. Sometimes it's not the immediate outward symptoms that cause us to realize we need a doctor. Sometimes it's a, a checkup that causes us to realize we need a doctor. A, a, a test that comes back and it, something's not quite right with the blood work. It's, it's something to that effect. I, I think today that's a very good way of understanding what's going on in our text. That There is... There is a condition, not physically, but spiritually, in the Laodicean church by which this church is sick and they don't know it. And their particular sickness, they can't see. And, and they, they might be tempted, as the Lord Jesus himself talks to this church and talks to churches like that have the same condition of complacency that the Laodicean church has. As Jesus talks to us, we and they might have the tendency to be in denial. I'm really not sick. Let's do some more blood work. That's not right. The trouble with that attitude toward Dr. Jesus or Lawyer Jesus or Governor Jesus or Pastor Jesus or whatever true and better version of Jesus you want to consider as a benevolent authority in your life today, he's never wrong. So if he is an expert witness speaks to you today through the Word, in the Spirit, you hear from the Spirit, and you define yourself as someone that is, that is in the category ever so slightly of complacent Christianity, don't push back against the report from the doctor at the routine checkup. Embrace it today if that fits you, and repent of your sin and keep walking with Jesus. This text is here for us. It's, it's not to condemn us, but it's also not to commend us in our sin of complacency if it actually describes us. It's not to condemn us, for you are blood-bought children of God. But it's also not to commend you in your sin. And in fact, it, instead, it calls you back to, to zealous earnestness and to repentance. It calls you back to the living faith that you first professed, okay? So we need to read this text as believers for believers. I have a word in this sermon for those of you that are on the outside looking in that have not yet come to the table of the Lord as a believer. But this text was written to a church. It was written to the church at Laodicea. So the context is he's writing to believers like us and so we need to hear from the lord about this condition a little bit more by way of introduction just because i think 
if it's well understood what the context of this particular church is, it's easier to get through the sermon itself. I'll just tell you a quick story. When I first started pastoring about 20 years ago, I was the liaison for uh, a well-known pastor who's now gone on and met the Lord Jesus, but he worked for Focus on the Family. He was Dr. James Dobson's cousin, H.B. London. And H.B. London was, was really a, a kind and generous, older, wiser man. And I was tasked with being his chauffeur for the particular pastor's event that was being held in Evansville. And so as I was taking him back from the conference, which he did a very good job of, of leading us in and, and helping us along in as, as clergymen, we stopped at the Denny's near the airport. Some of you all know where that's at on 41. And as an older, wiser man, man and me, a younger, wide-eyed, naive pastor, he spoke careful words to me that I really appreciate, even to this day. His careful, I mean, one fra- careful words, one phrase sticks out in my mind even now. He told me that it would be helpful if I would develop a prayer that was short and simple, but would, I would always pray it when I wasn't sure what else to pray. He said, call it the prayer of Matt. He told me what his was. It was the prayer of HB. I think you'll appreciate the concept, but I think you'll also appreciate the prayer. You might be curious what it is. He shared it with me. The prayer of HB was this. Lord, help me to see the world more like you see the world. Now, what was baked into the cake of the prayer of HB? What was baked into the cake of this older, wiser man who's now met the Lord Jesus? What was baked into the cake of his prayer was he knew that he would struggle to see the way that the Lord sees. He was humble about his perception of what life was like for him personally and what life was like for others in the world. I adapted it, Lord, help me to see people more like you see people. It's really the same prayer. I just stole it from HB, the world. People, help me to see people. Can I see a person more like the Lord does? That's, that's, I think that's a fair prayer. I don't know what your prayer might be. That's really not the purpose of this sermon. That might be a tertiary point. But I want you to think about HB's prayer. Help me see the world more like you see the world. The humility of HB London is the cure for the spiritual sin sickness of Laodicea. For humility brings awareness by the Spirit to the sin of complacency, which I believe is the sin of the members of a church like Laodicea that had the, the, the setting of Laodicea. You know, the Amazing Grace song, by a, another hymn by John Newton. How about that song this morning? I asked the Lord that I might grow. Boy, that just gets at me. That's a, that's a wonderful hymn. But Amazing Grace is too. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I... What a song lyric. The amazingness of that grace is the unlikeliness that a sinner like me and you would have it extended to us. You know, it's plain to see sins like sexual immorality. It's, everybody knows what it is. You know what it is. Plain sins, speech sins like gossip and crude talk. It's those subtle sins, those hidden sins that we have a harder time seeing now, isn't it? We need a posture of humility that, that we might have subtle sins in our lives that Jesus wants to talk to us about today. The obvious sins are quantifiable ailments, sicknesses that you know you need to repent of spiritually, like I've just said. Even if you haven't done it yet, you know you need to. For the Christian, the hardest thing about becoming a Christian is also the hardest thing about growing as a Christian. It's repenting of when you've been wrong about how you see the world. 
To be a more moral person, that's low-hanging fruit. To say my entire frame was wrong and Jesus needed to change my paradigm, if you want to use that term. Change my way of viewing things. And the Lord Jesus doesn't just do that when He saves our souls at conversion, but it's His grace to get us all the way home. As things get dim, as things are kind of out of view, He snaps it back and He does it by His Word. As a growing Christian, it's still amazing grace, and we, we need to repent of when we've been wrong about how we see the world around us. And we need, like a child, to be quick to do so. We become committed in, to the way that we see things, entrenched in our view. And to an extent, that's helpful, because convictions are helpful. I don't want you to be mealy-mouthed, weak-willed, Stockholm Syndrome-having, flaky, lack-of-conviction Christians. I don't want that from you. I don't pray that for you. I want you to have the conviction to lead. But that conviction and that competency can subtly slip into the conviction that you don't have needs, that you aren't needy before Christ. And that's never right. That's never right. We, are, we stand in need of His grace each day. Self-reliance supplants spirit-reliance. And we have to fight it at every turn with the help of God. My means squeezes out God's means of grace. Affluence brings apathy. Competency brings complacency. Unless prayer stays central. We confuse our stoic self-assuredness for sensitive spiritual awareness. And when we see the world wrongly, we are in desperate need of a jolt, like a Jesus jolt, to reframe our way of looking at things. Have you ever looked at a... A narrative, if you ever, not, not a narrative, but if you've, if you've ever listened to a narrative and there was like this piece of information missing in the storyline, the movie, the book, whatever you're reading, the, the, the short story, whatever it is, and in the end, the piece of information you, you, you were missing tied it all together. You know this, this scheme for writing and telling stories? It's kind of like that. It's like you can be going along and you think you understand a story and all of a sudden this piece of information like snaps it all into view and it makes sense. Jesus wants to do that for us by His Word. He wants to give us that information early in the movie of your life and all along to get you to, get you to see what it is you're missing to be able to see clearly. Jesus sees. Jesus knows these verses in Revelation tell us. Jesus is. So what we will see today with the help of God is how to see more faithfully with the help of God. These seven letters provide sight for the Christian that has begun viewing a, an image blurry, seeing only in a dim light. Jesus, the light, gives us a vivid picture of himself in chapter 1 of Revelation. A vivid picture. You should reread it. It's a vivid picture. And then he shines a light on specific sin sicknesses, issues, in each of the seven first century churches in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, north of the Mediterranean Sea. Those churches would have received this letter originally, written by John the Apostle from his prison island of Patmos. They would have received the letter in the first century personally in the original audiences and the, the, the courier would have had to make a kind of a horseshoe shaped route to get from the first church Ephesus all the way around and back down to the last church Laodicea. This is the seventh of these churches and we've preached through them all. If you want to go back and listen to some of the sermons, if that's profitable to you, we've preached through them. And so now we come to the seventh of seven churches listed in Revelation 2 and 3. We come to the church at Laodicea and it is a church. It is Believers, But understand that after giving this 
beautiful picture of Christ, he then shows how it can be obfuscated, how, how it can be hard to see because of our sin. And he's addressing these sins to the praise of his glory for our good. So our posture needs to be humble as we hear these words. I know a lot of disclaimers, but I think disclaimers are in order because of the hardness of the teaching to those of us that have been given, become given to the sin of complacency. Because you, you, you and I will not be prone to hear it. It's not like sexual immorality where it's obvious. You either, you either fix the problem, you don't fix the problem, you know what it is. It's not like that. Complacency is so subtle that if we don't have spiritual ears to hear spiritual things, because it's, oh, well, that was good for somebody else, it's not for me. Today we need to imagine that this sermon might be for me. And not to the loss of our salvation, no far be it, to the growth in our salvation. John the Apostle is careful to remind us that each of these seven letters are for all the churches and not just for the church that's being addressed in the first century. It's for all churches for all time. So these, these messages, this message is from Mount Vernon Baptist Church. Ephesus was a conservative church that couldn't see its lack of love. The suffering church couldn't see its spiritual power and provision. The liberal church couldn't see its sexual immorality was dangerous. The cowardly church couldn't see the danger of allowing false teachers. The nominal church at Sardis couldn't see that coziness with the world was compromised with Christ. And now the complacent church cannot see that their uselessness based on their self-reliance is a problem. They don't see their complacency that has come as a result of affluence. So that with that more Long than normal introduction. Let's now read the text. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the, of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so that because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold... I will spit you, or, or more literally, vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove, and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with the Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The churches, all of them, including ours. May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto the hearers. The sick, complacent church needs the precise witness, the precise diagnosis, and the precise counselor of a benevolent lawyer, doctor, governor. And so if you want to follow this sermon next, verse 14, we're going to see our need for a precise witness. Verses 15 through 17, we're going to see our need for a precise diagnosis. And then in verses 18 through 20, we're going to see our need for a precise counselor. So witness, diagnosis, and counselor. Follow it that way. I'll tell you one last time because it's your roadmap for the rest of the sermon. 
you need a precise witness, diagnosis, and counselor. Verse 14, 15 to 17, 18 to 20. So first, let's take it on its parts. In this near courtroom-like drama, Jesus is the expert witness. The sick, complacent church needs the precise witness facilitated by a benevolent lawyer. Look again at verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen or amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. The sick, complacent church needs this precise expert witness facilitated by the benevolent, benevolent lawyer. Now here's my question for you as we, as we look at this. Who among us has a lot of faith in lawyers, right? <laughs> I was reading in, uh, in, the, in the New Testament, and I ran across in the back of the Titus' letter, there was a commended lawyer named Zenos. And it sort of checked me on this caricature that all lawyers are bad. You know, they're not. There are good lawyers out there. And if you've never met one, you ought to. I know one. I actually know of a lawyer. That's a, he's a benevolent lawyer. There are benevolent lawyers out there. Now, you probably have come across some lawyers that are, uh, shall we say, scoundrel-esque. But there's some good lawyers out there. And you know what? Some of our Christian kids need to go into the legal field, don't they? Because we need some lawyers. That's not a bad thing to study law. In fact, uh, I think uh, Harish likes to say that if my daughter doesn't study law, it's a travesty of justice because she's got this legal mind. You know, I don't know if she will or not, but she ought to study law because she's legal mind. I, I think sometimes lawyers get a bad rap. Uh, that whole side of things is important. I'm going to talk about doctors too, but I, I want you to think of Jesus as a true and better lawyer in this point. Look at verse 14. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of amen, the faithful and true witness, the expert witness. That's what a lawyer does is make sure that the right witnessing happens on the stand. They make sure that the procedure it, it should arrive at justice. That's their hope. Or at least it should be their aim a benevolent lawyer anyway, the beginning of God's creation. So Christ here is the exemplar when it comes to being a witness. His words are always true. What he says about the church is always true. You never have to doubt it. So the promise of a new creation by the faithful God of Israel primarily stands behind this title, the Amen, the Faithful and True. G.K. Beale says, It stands behind the concluding stanza of this verse, the beginning of the creation of God, or the beginning of God's creation. The notion of God and of Israel as a faithful witness to the new creation is an Isaiah-based concept from the Old Testament, and it forms the background of witnessing or testifying, marturas, being a martyr for the Lord, a testimony for the Lord, a witness for the Lord. The Old Testament allusions here indicate that Christ is the true Israel and the divine amen, the faithful and true witness to his own resurrection. And as the beginning of the new creation of God, he has initiated the fulfillment of the promises of Isaiah of a new creation. These prophecies are fulfilled in Christ. So let's just take one passage, for example, Isaiah 65, 15 and 16. It says, you shall leave your name to my chosen for a curse, and the Lord God will put you to death, but his servants he will call by another name 
so that he who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And literally, the Hebrew word there is amen. The God of amen. Elohim, amen. So amen means truth or verified. By the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall share, shall share, shall swear, I can't say swear, swear by the God of truth, literally, Elohim, amen, the God of the amen, because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. So we need to recover corporate prayer ending together with our amen. And our amen needs to be said together, verifying before God the truth of his fulfillment of all good things within his will, and particularly of the things that he's pleased to answer that we pray for. 1 Corinthians 14, 16 has a context of the Apostle Paul correcting misguided corporate worship. And he utters these instructions. He says, How will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at your giving of thanks in your worship services if he can't understand what you're saying because you're speaking gibberish, you're not speaking with clarity. And he's contextualizing the waning gift of speaking in tongues in the first century church at Corinth. And he says, speak an intelligible word. And he speaks of our corporate prayers as ending in amen. One pastor, Ryan Davidson, says it this way. He says, the apostle Paul in Corinthians is addressing the intelligibility of prayers within the gathered assembly, within the corporate worship of the church, what we're doing right here on the Lord's day. And the word amen, which is mentioned again in Revelation, means let it be so, or truly, or yes. So think of amen as its usage in 2 Corinthians 1.20 for context, where it says, For all the promises of God find their amen, or their yes, in Jesus, in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our, you can just say it with me, amen to God for His glory. Amen? When the church gathers to pray, one of the best things we can do is listen with our ears and pray along with our minds with the person who is taking his turn in voicing his prayer. We've had brothers do that already this morning. I hope you listen with your mind and follow along. The amen said to the prayer at the end is our way of saying yes or of agreeing together as the Lord with the Lord in each and every moment of our lives together gathered in prayer. So corporate prayer is shown in the scriptures as a pattern of the apostles that we are commanded to follow, and it demonstrates not only the usefulness of prayer, but also the fact that prayer is a means of grace that the Lord has given His church to be pursued, that is, the means of grace is to be pursued, not only by individual believers at home praying and saying amen, But in the context I've now mentioned in Scripture, by the assembled body of people praying and saying amen together. So when a service leader offers a prayer of praise or confession or assurance or thanksgiving or illumination or intercession or a pastoral prayer, from call to worship on the front end to the benediction on the back end, as we're focusing vertically on the Lord in this space... Let's agree that we're not only singing the word, we're not only preaching the word, we're not only reading the word, but we are praying the word. And when those prayers offered with humility, offered with spiritual credibility, are uttered on behalf of our service leaders, let's end them with a hearty yes, a truly an amen. Jesus is the amen. We are told to pray in his name and we end with amen. 
Revelation 3.14 and other places in Revelation define Jesus with this word that we're praying to. His ontological nature is the yes to the spiritual people asking for spiritual things. Can't you say with me what a friend we have in Jesus? He is our friend indeed. He's so kind to us. He is a benevolent legal figure in our lives, expertly witnessing to what's really going on in our lives, even when it's been sidelined, marginalized, we can't see it clearly. Revelation 3.14 frames the rest of the verses in this text. It demands more of our attention in this sermon. It describes Jesus as the beginning of God's creation. Let's not consider seriously the error of Arius in the 4th century, who shortly after the Roman Empire legalized Christianity, described Jesus as the Son of God, but not as eternal and not as fully divine like God the Father. The Arian controversy helped us to understand the Arian heresy. We need to affirm, as our statement of faith affirms, that Jesus Christ is fully God. He is one substance with the Father, and this text in Revelation 3.14 does no damage to our belief in the triune God. God is in three persons. He's a blessed trinity. This text is emphasizing that Jesus is the firstborn among the resurrection from the dead. Not to die again. The firstborn of the new creation, like Isaiah prophesied. So your assurance of resurrection is as grounded in Jesus as your assurance that you've been forgiven of your sins. Differently, if you can have confidence that you're saved right now, you can have confidence that your cold, dead body's coming out of the grave. Now that's a pretty good friend, isn't it? Jesus' obedience, both actively and passively, has assured your resurrection. Consider how G.K. Beale says it. He says, the relationship of Revelation 3.14 to Revelation 1.5, and you might want to strike that, like put a little mark by that verse if you're looking to print Bible. The relationship to those two verses are best understood in light of the book of Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 18, which I'm going to read in a moment. Both texts are considered to be interpreted primarily by their contexts. And Revelation 3.14 is a development in Revelation of Christ's title that was uttered first in Revelation in Revelation 1.5. There Jesus is a faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead. It is not related to the original creation, but to Jesus' ministry, His death, and His resurrection. This assignment of that phrase is important. The beginning of the creation of God is evidently a development of the phrase, the firstborn of the dead from Revelation 1.5, and also immediately follows with the faithful witness, the expert witness. Listen to Colossians now for a few passages that helps us understand Laodicea and helps us understand Revelation 3. Colossians 1.15 to 18 says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or thought of first. So put a pin in the ideas from this passage of the church and of thrones as in subjection to Christ. And note the authorities or rulers 
and thrones in light of Revelation 3.21, which we have at the end of our passage for today when we get there. Now, Colossae, the city that this particular book I just cross-referenced is written to, is near the city of Laodicea, geographically speaking. And therefore, the book of Colossians gives us textual clues into Jesus' letter to the church at Laodicea that we're studying today from Revelation chapter 3. And so it's relevant. Consider just a few verses from Colossians and its relevance on our text for today. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have had for you and for those at Laodicea. And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their heart may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and of knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Friends, when we gather together here, it's all about Christ. Profoundly and precisely about Christ. We find our needs seen and met as we elevate the preeminent one, Christ. It doesn't work the other way around. The Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the church at Colossae, but it was to have been read at Laodicea. He expects the scripture to be read in the church of Laodicea as well as Colossae, and even notes Hierapolis, another city in the area. In Paul's commendation of the ministry of an elder figure named Epaphras in the early church at Colossae, he says this of the church's meetings in those cities. Colossians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. And this will be the last of my cross-references to Colossians that have bearing on how we understand the message to Laodicea in Revelation. So listen to these two verses from Colossians 4, 12 and 13. You might note them for a cross-reference. Epaphras, who is one of you... Church at Colossae, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Note that prayer is a struggle worth having here. Sanctification is a struggle worth having. This church community is a struggle worth having. Growth in Christ is a struggle worth having. It is a struggle, though. Keep struggling. Notice that in this church community, that is a struggle worth having. Notice that kingdom work starts here. Listen to how this text bears out. His prayers... Epaphras' prayers that he's struggling in, he prays that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in, you see, Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Now, our first point this morning of the sermon is that you would be able to, to see more clearly as a complacent, as a, possibly as a complacent church, I hope you're not complacent, but if you are, that in your complacency, you would be able to see more clearly because of the precise witness facilitated by a better benevolent lawyer. Consider Jesus witnessing, testifying here, and orchestrating justice. Consider that here. And our second point is like it, the sick complacent church needs the precise diagnosis of a benevolent doctor. Now turn back to Revelation 3 and reconsider verses 15 to 17 in light of what we've already taught. Remember the opening metaphor of a checkup and being sick and not knowing it. 
and getting a surprising diagnosis from your doc and being reluctant to accept it. And remember how that is a metaphor for being spiritually sick and how I believe that the Lord Jesus wants you to see today that complacency is kind of like a hidden spiritual sickness that you, you didn't see, but the blood work bore it out. Christ bore it out. So our first point was considering Jesus' lawyer-like facility of a testimony. And now this is his doctor-like diagnosis of your problem. And listen, with that, the way of thinking of it, listen to Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. I know your works, he said. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out or vomit you out of my mouth. It's like nausea. It's coming out. It's a medical condition he's describing. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Verse 17. For you say, I am rich, have prospered, I need nothing. Never say that before Jesus. You're always in need before Jesus. He meets your needs. Your every breath happens in Jesus. So Laodicea, they might not say that, but Jesus knows their hearts. They think that. I don't have any needs. I'm stoic. Not realizing, actually, instead, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So Jesus is, is not in any way surprised, caught off guard, or unaware. He knows when complacency has crept into the competent Christian's life. Now, back to those three cities, Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. Colossae was known for its fresh supply of cool, refreshing water. I know it's kind of cold outside right now, but if you imagine you're working outside on a hot day and you find a, a water hose that gets water from deep down in the ground, you turn that thing on, and you get that cold drink of water that trickles all the way down your esophagus. You know what that feels like? I remember working on a farm as a kid, pitching watermelons and baling hay. Man, when I could get to a cold drink, boy, that felt good. Yeah. That's, it's refreshing, isn't it? So Colossae had that going for it with its water supply in the ancient world in the first century. Hierapolis was known for its warm water springs. And these warm waters had a healing value. They were useful. You can think of this in cold weather, I know. I'll bet a few of you have used the healing medicinal qualities of a warm bath or shower even this week. Who likes to soak under the hot water after a hard day? Yeah. And so you can imagine how warm water can have healing properties. Laodicea, for all of its wealth, and it did have it, it had wealth, and this text describes the kind of wealth it had. It made black wool. It had riches from medical salve that apparently had healing qualities for the eyes. And this, this is a town that has done well monetarily, so well, in fact, that after the earthquake of A.D. 60, they rejected tax dollar funds from the Roman Empire because they wanted to do themselves. They didn't want the trappings that came with taxpayer money. Colossae is the kind of city that you will be proud to be involved in. It is a self-motivated, self-sustaining operation. But when that is applied to your spiritual needs, you sin. Because you always stand in need of the Spirit's sufficiency, not your self-sufficiency. Of reliance on the Lord and not on yourself. That is the crux of the lesson of the letter to the church at Laodicea. Now, how does that apply to Laodicea? Well, Jesus says to them that 
well, their water supply, for one, can make them sick. He says they're neither hot nor cold, neither refreshing nor healing, like the other cities' water supply. And he speaks to them on a very practical level. And he says, like the useful water supply in Colossians and Colossae and Hierapolis is not like yours. And you know it. You know your water's bad. You've gotten sick from it. It's like it's lukewarm when you drink it. It's calcified. It's not good. And Jesus wants the Laodiceans to see that despite their material wealth from their manufacturing and their salves and their proudness to not take taxpayer money, despite all the can-do attitudeism of the Laodicean believers, he wants them to admit that their water supply was piped in in aqueducts, inadequate, lukewarm, and sometimes spoiled, and it could cause you to nauseously spit it up. Jesus is putting a complacent church practically and relevantly with an illustration that church would have understood and we need to understand today Jesus is putting a complacent church back in touch with what the real need is. This letter is for every complacent Christian everywhere in all times. That we might have the expert prowess of Jesus to bring his doctor professionality, his lawyer professionality to bear on our subtle sin of complacency. For if there's ever been a good doctor and a lawyer, they find their creation in God. Revelation 3.17 says that the Laodicean believers say before Jesus that they don't have any needs. I need nothing. Well, you might want to just kind of, in your mind, highlight or write out those three words. I need nothing. Do you feel that way before Jesus? Not that you'd say it. Not that you'd be like, you get up in the morning for your quiet time, you'd be like, yawn, don't think I've really got time for this, I need to get on with my day. Not that you'd say, hey Jesus, I don't need you. You wouldn't do that. But would you act that way? Would you live your life in such a way where you, you really don't need his counsel, his care? Being put back into a situation where you realize your need is a grace from the Lord. So important and helpful. It is an expression of his love for you when he, as a good doctor, puts you back in touch with your need when your life is otherwise seeming to be managed pretty well of your own accord. What he says to them in their sin of complacency that actually was birthed out of their own competency coupled with a lack of prayer, what he says to them is that your current works are as useless as the water supply you have in your city. The good works have to be piped in from somewhere else. And your current behavior patterns, even though I'm talking to you as a church of believers, your current behavior patterns are so disgusting that you make me want to spit you out. It's like the water. It's not that he is spitting them out. He's just trying to get them jolted into seeing what their situation spiritually really is and where they need to go. Jesus jolts the complacent believers to show them their deep need. If the church stays in prayer, any competency that we have breeds contentment, which is commended in the Scripture. Godliness with contentment is great gain, 1 Timothy says. But the love of money and of affluence is the root of all evil. Our reliance on money is really a reliance on ourselves and our own sense of omnicompetency, which is idolatry. And it is the root of evil. I ask you today, friends, where has your competence, where has our competence, 
led to complacency rather than contentment. Let us take our cues from the text today. Revelation 3, 14 through 22. You might say, like the Laodiceans would say, I've got enough earnings to get by. I'm doing pretty good. I've prospered in my work. I'm proud of my work. I've got clothes in the closet. I have the medicines that I need. I'm doing okay. And as far as it goes, perhaps that's true. But from a spiritual perspective, we have to remember that if our physical needs are met, it is the sheer grace and provision of Christ. And it doesn't automatically mean that our spiritual needs are being met and we're receiving the teaching of the Lord for our lives. It is quite possible for us to have the look and the veneer of competency and yet be guilty of the charge before Christ of the sin of the Laodiceans, complacent Christianity. In this way, we will have become so earthly-minded we're of no heavenly good. Complacent Christians are being lulled to sleep on spiritual things, like a numbing element from a doctor. The salvation of souls is a nice thought, but it requires no hardship on our part, no reaction. The testifying to truth in the public square has become too costly for us, a price to be paid. Complacent Christianity is self-protectionary. It's self-sufficient rather than being an ambassador for Jesus, useful for proclaiming the gospel. Complacent Christians are not necessarily the nominal Christians like the church was at Sardis. They haven't necessarily made peace with the culture around them, but they have little effect on the culture around them because their senses and their sight Their senses are dulled. They're numbed. They don't see the way Jesus sees their current pattern of life. Let me ask you a few questions. Because we'll be very slow to accept the fact that that elements of complacent Christianity might have come into our lives. Even though our cultural affluence really makes us ripe for such a condition. When's the last time you gave until your pocketbook hurt because you believed in a certain gospel cause so much you were willing to face hardship for it? When is the last time you prayed for a need, an important need, to the point, I told you it happened again, to the point of missing a meal or even fasting for the salvation of a person or of a people group in the world? Have you missed food because of the deep sense of prayer for a need? For the gospel to go forward. When's the last time you gave up on a social opportunity to prioritize the amens that we utter on the Lord's Day? Or to put margin needed in your schedule for effective ministry of the Word in your home, at your dinner table, with your kids, with your spouse, dads, with your wife? When is the last time you prolonged going for medicinal helps for your ailments and your sense of downtroddenness just long enough to let maybe even a small bit of time for for biblical counseling bring healing words from Jesus to bear on your life situation. If I were to say you might be a complacent Christian if it's been a while since you answer yes to any of those questions, I think you would get at what I'm asking you to consider. Number three. The sick, complacent church needs the precise counsel of a benevolent, governing ruler. Of a benevolent, governing ruler. 
those that govern us need to have the heart of a teacher if they're going to be effective. They need to be benevolent in the sense that they know the needs of the people and they actually seek to serve them instead of be served. We need that. And I could talk about it as the pastor with the trifecta from the introduction, but I'll just talk about it from a governing official. I think we're a little more familiar with that, what we perceive to be that role. And, and here's really why I say it that way. Look at Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. It says, The one who conquers, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. Throne is a symbol, as we've seen in our cross-reference today, of rulership. It's a symbol of authority. And so Jesus has conquered by giving himself up, by facing hardship, and he has laid out a path of not of the way of glory, but of the way of the cross for us. And in his conquering and sitting down with the Father, he invites us to shared reign and rule with him in the kingdom that is being ushered in and has already been inaugurated or begun by his finished work on the cross. Now, hang with me today, because when he says, I will grant him to sit on my throne, that shared rulership in verse 21, what he's describing is completely different than the bad governing authorities that you see in our day and age. They're not sharing authority with you. They're domineering over you. They're not looking to empower you and equip you. They want something from you. It's only the good governors that actually have a benevolent heart for the people. The Christ-like governors, especially or commonly. You need those in authority. You need to have the confidence that they care about something besides themselves. Let me tell you something. Jesus' rulership and his doctoring and his lawyering and his witness is always and forever, always and forever, done benevolently for you. Precisely for you. Always. You can always count on Him. And what the sick, complacent church needs is the precise counsel of Jesus' benevolent rulership in our lives. And here's what it is. And we'll end with these three verses in our final point today. Revelation chapter 3, verses 18, 19, and 20. Consider them afresh. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. See how relevant that is? They had salve and made money. He's saying, you need my salve. They were confident in their own black wool clothing. They say, he says, you need to be white with mine clothes. He's saying, you've got the physical part. You need spiritual needs met even in your affluent society. Your competency is bred complacency. Don't you see? And so look at what he, what he says with his, his wonderful, precise counsel for th this type of church. He says in verse 19, I love you. I love you. Doesn't say I hate you. He doesn't say you should be unconfident in your salvation. He says, I, I love you. I love you. Those whom I love. I don't know who else he's talking to, but the church. I love you. And he says, those whom I love. What? How does... How does he speak? Those whom I love, I just don't ever talk to you about your sins. I just let you do whatever you want. I mean, I'm not really worried about you and how you live your life. It's no big deal to me. I'm just way over here. Always granting you like a cosmic Santa Claus, whatever you want. Cha-ching. Is that how this reads? Not at all. Jesus says to a church like this, I discipline you. I reprove you, which is really a word that means to expose hidden sin. 
I show you what you can't see about your sin. The, the subtle sins, like complacency. And he says, if, if, if this has ministered to you, this whole batch of goods that I'm telling you about precisely as a benevolent professional in your life, what you need to do is be earnest or zealous. You need to be earnest afresh for the things of me and repent of your sin. You know, like a little kid would do when they get caught eating candy when they're not supposed to. Hey, what'd you do that for, kid? Mm, I'm sorry. All right, give me a hug. Don't do it again. I'll spank you. You know, I mean, it's, it's like we get on with it. As adults, we get this, this kind of this, 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 this thickness with us where we, just, we, we don't know how to repent because we're so set in our way of viewing things that we couldn't possibly change our behavioral patterns or change our lifestyle when we become complacent in order to be faithful. But that's not the way Jesus is calling us to. He calls us to be quick to listen and quick to repent. And that's good for us. The complacent church needs this precise counsel. Jesus is the counselor here. As a lawyer is referred to as a counsel, he's the good counselor. And he counsels them to take what he has for their needs. And he doesn't spell love, L-O-V-E. He spells it D-I-S-C-I-P-L-I-N-E. He spells it discipline. It's not the lovey-dovey stuff of, of our world today. He spells brotherly love as reprove, R-E-P-R-O-V-E. Would you let the Word of God reprove you today and know that that's in the context of His affection for you? Isn't that wonderful? This text is, is written for believers. It's a hard text for slightly hardened Christians. That's why I've approached it the way that I have. Won't you hear Jesus' pursuit of you today? His relentless pursuit of you today? Revelation 3.20 is for the believer too. He isn't wanting to come in to eat with you as for salvation, but for renewed fellowship. Meals are important to Jesus. These are times for intimacy with His people. You know, we should use our meals wisely too. Fast food might be convenient, but it isn't nourishing. Family food is a, a slow, methodical approach to spending time together over spiritual things. You see, this would have been relevant to the Laodicean church too. Jesus' words are always relevant to those who have ears to hear. Because the Roman soldiers bullied their ways into the houses of the Laodicean citizens, whether they liked it or not, and they demanded a meal. That's probably why the Laodiceans didn't take the tax dollars whenever the earthquake happened, because they didn't have a good relationship with those soldiers, with those ruling authorities. There's some wonderful qualities to these proud Laodiceans, I tell you. I, I rather like them, and you probably would too. You'd probably find a lot of commonalities with them. And to some extent, insofar as it goes with physical things, this is good. But that Scotch-Irish work ethic has an underbelly if it's applied directly to spiritual things, because you don't work for your salvation. You don't accomplish it, not a bit. We are needy, aren't we? How dare we say, I have no need? Those Roman soldiers that didn't bother knocking at the door to ask if the Laodicean citizens would open their home and share a meal with them, they have nothing in common with the rulership of Jesus Christ now, do they? The Roman rulers demanded food. They took the spoils. wasn't benevolent rulership. Jesus represents a different type of rulership. He wants to share His throne with you one day in glory. Won't you receive Him? Won't you co-reign with Jesus? He wants to give you a job in heaven. Would you prepare for it now on earth? Conquer sin with His help by receiving and responding to letters like these in Revelation 2 and 3. He's going to share His throne with you. Just repent. When, he faces, when you're faced with conviction of sin, don't run and hide like Adam did in the Garden of Eden after he sinned. 
like a little kid getting a reprimand from a loving parent, just repent and give Jesus a proverbial hug. I accept your expert witness. I repent of my sin. I'm going to be in glory with you, and you're going to be preeminent, and that's just fine with me. I'll make much of you now. Jesus is drawing you in, not dominating you with heavy-handed strongman tactics. He's loving you with discipline, and He's offering table fellowship to you by asking you for it. You see, the point of Revelation 3.20 is not evangelism. The point of Revelation 3.20 is outreach to the complacent Christian. Yeah, you remember me, Jesus says to the complacent Christian? It's been a while since we've ate together. Um, Could I come in and start dinner with you? You got anything in the cabinet? Could we commune together? Could I have a talk with your family tonight? Is there a table we can set at? Would you let me come in? Jesus is so much a better communicator than me. He speaks to all the senses. Hear, see, different places, taste, touch, all the senses. He speaks to them all in Revelation. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 3.20, what every evangelism tactic value it might have, is a message to the believers for a renewed, loving fellowship with your Lord. Now, I need to say a word before I close to those of you that haven't trusted Jesus. If you've never become a follower of Christ, I want to talk to you for just a moment this morning, whether you're a young person or an older person that's been hedging and waiting. Say your first prayer of repentance today. Tell the Lord that you have sinned, that you're a rebel against Him, and that you need His salvation. Thank Him for what He's done on your behalf on the cross to assure your resurrection from the dead in glory and ask for His salvation. He wants to come in and dine with you. He wants a fellowship relationship with you. He's offering it to you. And the reciprocity is your reception of His free gift. And He loves you like this throughout your Christian life. But Christian, make no mistake, Revelation 3.20 is not just for that unbeliever that perhaps became warm today toward spiritual things. Revelation communicates with sights and sounds and tastes and touches and smells like Revelation 1, 16 and 17 says. He lays his right hand on the churches. He's personal and he cares and he's powerful and he wields his authority with precision to help you through the medical and legal and governmental needs of your life. With spiritual precision, he touches the spiritual needs that you have. Church, what wonder it is to walk with Jesus all the days of our life. No matter what ails us, he is faithful and he will do it. And those moments that jolt us, like when a doctor says, I've got bad news, or when a legal report says, you've been summoned. When the governing authorities say, you didn't file right on your taxes. When the authorities in your life speak to you, you're jolted. But Jesus jolts you in spiritual ways with utter benevolence for your soul. It's not to play gotcha. It's not to lock you up. It's to free you and set you about his work. Trust Him today. And if you're a complacent Christian, let this text come to bear on your life. Return to table fellowship. We're going to take the Lord's Supper next Sunday here on February 7th. And all the believers are invited to take the Lord's Supper together with us and be reminded of His extension to us to come in and eat with us, spend time with us, to teach us, even to jolt us if necessary, back into seeing rightly that which he's laid out for us. So find 
a return to joy in our salvation. He helps us to see more clearly. I love how Kevin DeYoung ends his sermon on this, and I'm going to read what he says, and then we'll close. He says, It's very easy for me to become Laodicean. It's very possible for me to grow half-hearted in my disciplines, in my giving, in my witness, in my pursuit of holiness, in my desire for the things of God and for God Himself. It's an individual and it's a corporate danger. Being reminded of Zephaniah 1, 12, we think the Lord will do nothing good or evil. He's just not going to do anything at all when we're caught up in complacency. That's the biblical definition of complacency. The Lord's not going to do anything, good or evil. He's just kind of there, and I'm competent to do my thing. It's not contentment that God will take care of me. It's complacency that God doesn't care what I'm doing, and nothing could be further from the truth. The former contentment is commended. The latter complacency is condemned. And we, as God's people, he said, will always be God's people anyway. He said, why put in the effort? Why pursue holiness? What does it matter? If I fall into sin, there's a lot of grace from God. What does it matter? That's complacency. Not expecting the Lord to judge wickedness. Not believing that He can come through for His people in unexpected power to take care of the righteous. That's complacency. I want you to answer this question this morning as a, as a means of worship at the end of this sermon. Do you believe God is not through with you yet? Yes. Do you believe God is not through with you yet? Amen. Do you believe God is not through with you yet? Yeah. Do you believe God's not through with you, plural, yet? Yeah. Then let this text press back against complacency and woo you and draw you closer to the loving meal prepared by the Father. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for ministering to us by the Word today. Help our dim eyes to see clearly, to see things like you see things, to see you as we should, as our loving Savior. We ask that you be with our families and with our church family, with those that serve us in the medical community, in the legal community. We ask that you seize the consciences of our governing authorities. Make these benevolent to the praise of your glory. I ask that you help our members that are suffering from seasonal anxiety and other sicknesses. We pray for Miss Lois Forston, who had to go by ambulance to the hospital this morning from Sunday school because of low blood pressure concerns. We ask you to heal her body right now, care for her family. We pray for all of the sick and afflicted in our church. We pray for those that have COVID to be healed and, and healing for the entire virus, all the sicknesses. We pray for those that have recently lost loved ones. We ask for your benevolent touch in their lives. We pray for widows in our congregation, such as Mrs. Mildred Yunker, who turns 90 years young later this month. We pray for her and all of our widows. Pray for our missionaries to lands such as the Middle East in regions near the churches that we've just preached about, listened to in Revelation. We pray, you pray now that you prepare our hearts and minds for this important appointment to prepare to receive the Lord's Supper together next Sunday, as you will in Jesus' name. And all of God's children say, Amen. Please take 30 seconds.